good to gather together on Resurrection Sunday to be able to proclaim that our King lives. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning as you turn there. I am aware there's no nursery. I know there's no designated children's church this morning. And so just to you as parents, as you sit there and your kids act up, don't worry. We're just judging you and know how you failed as a parent. <laughs> no big deal. My poor wife sits back there with four kids all by herself every week. And every week I say, you failed again. They didn't, they didn't listen. But that's actually why I'm a preacher. I don't have to do that. I get to come up here and avoid being a parent. No. It's good to have our kids with us. It's okay to hear them. They're part of our family. I'm thankful that they're here. Last week, uh, we took time to walk through Holy Week together. So we saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem all the way to Christ dying. And we stayed in the Gospel of Luke for that. We'll actually look at the resurrection this morning in Luke. And so you'll turn there a, a little later. But this morning, as we gather to, to worship God together, our focus is on the resurrection it's on the fact that Christ is alive. And my hope this morning is to take some time to reflect a little bit of what we saw last week so that we can better grasp what has fully happened in the resurrection, in the fact that Jesus is alive. And I want to do this by looking at a concept that you will see in a lot of theology books, different things, but looking at Christ's humiliation, but also Christ's exaltation and the importance of both of those. And we see this here in Philippians chapter 2 of where I asked you to turn. And so I want to read, if you'll follow with me, beginning in verse 5 and just read through verse 11. This is a very uh, famous passage, but in this passage we see Christ's humiliation, but also his exaltation. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason I start here this morning is because you see so clearly what I had mentioned, the fact that Christ did go through humiliation, but in the end we see Christ being exalted and we look forward to seeing him exalted at the end, which we'll talk about. Before we dive too much into that though, one of the things I want us to remember this morning or want you to know, uh, maybe you haven't been to church very often, maybe you don't know much about the Bible and you're curious about this. In, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, we learn something very important and it's the fact that Jesus Christ has always existed. All right, he, he's always been. Listen, in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, In the beginning was the Word. This is referencing Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without, without him was not anything made that was made. This is important. Okay? Jesus always has been. There's never been a time when Christ wasn't. And here that's what John is showing us. He's showing us, number one, that Jesus is God, and that being God, he's always been. And in fact, he says there in the verses that I just read, 
that everything that's ever been created, anything, was created through Jesus. So if you think about that for a moment, because that would mean Jesus himself then can't be created because everything that was created has been created through him. And so we see here that Jesus is the Son of God. What we see historically is uh, we know that God is Trinity. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is, this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And you might be saying, why are you going over this? Well, it's because there are people who deny this today. It's very common to hear that Jesus was just some man who, who God created. He, it's good to look at his life. It's good to maybe learn some things from his life. But he wasn't, he wasn't God. There's no way that he was God. And then walk this earth. It doesn't make sense. But yet, Scripture tells us that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what is taking place here. And so before we understand how Christ was humiliated and how he's been exalted, we got to be reminded of how it all began. And that is that Jesus always has been and always will be. And so he's in need of nothing. I want us to know that this morning. If Jesus is fully God, he doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. He doesn't need this earth. He doesn't need water or food like we need. He doesn't need sunlight like we're finally seeing again after a long time of not seeing it. Right? He doesn't need those things. So we have to understand that. And before we can start to understand his humiliation, which we see there in Philippians chapter 2. Because when we think about Jesus, the fact that he is God, think about how humiliating his birth must have been. That's humiliating. For God himself to wrap himself in flesh. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, which I already read. It says, but he what? Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. There's some of us who would like to parade around of how good of a man we are. We, we would say that with, with pride, to talk about our accomplishments or how strong we are, or maybe even our family, and say, look at our family. It's part of my manhood to be this man. For, for God to become man, that's humiliating, to wrap himself in flesh. In John, where I'd referenced before, in verse 14 there in chapter 1, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now remember, he's God. He has no need of this world, yet he allows himself to take on flesh and to come into this world, this world full of sin, this world of shame, this world of lowliness. And you think about that. What a, what a demotion. What a, what a lowering. I would ask you the question if you can imagine anything like this, but we really can't. We, we can't equate with this. You could probably think of some things in your life of where you've been demoted in some way and how humiliating that can be. I was thinking about that a little bit. I'm sure some of you have reached this stage. I see you do it. When you need to read, you need to do this. That's why we put words on the screen for you. Your guys' arms aren't long enough to go far enough to see it anymore. What is that? That's a demotion in life. Your eyes are are beginning to fail you. You can't see like you once could see. And some of you, be honest, because you think it's humiliating, will try to deny that you can't see. You try to act like you can. Why do you do that? Because it's somewhat embarrassing because it shows how frail you are. What the Bible tells us is that God would wrap himself in the same flesh you and I are wrapped in that would fall apart that would feel pain, that would hurt, that would struggle. God would do that. 
And so that is a humiliating place for God, just the fact that he was born. But then you take it the next step. We see in Jesus' life that he suffered. In his everyday life, he suffered. Number one, he's God, and he's got to live amongst the sin and the filth of us men and women. But then the Lord himself wraps himself in flesh, and he doesn't come to live amongst us as some great king. Right? He doesn't live amongst us and go straight to the, to the mansion to live on high and parade himself around the streets for all of us lowly creatures to bow before him. That's not how he comes. He, he comes to this earth, wraps himself in flesh, but he comes in a humiliating form to suffer and to be a servant. Right? It's one thing for God to wrap himself in flesh again and be wealthy and let everybody know who he is, but no, he, he comes and he... He serves. And as we talked about last week, he doesn't even surround himself with the best people. His father gives him 12 guys, which, like we said, seem to be pretty ignorant. They seem to not be able to catch on to things, and they seem to not be very tough, because as we saw, when he was going through the most trying time of his life, Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, where were they? Gone. So he doesn't even have the best of friends while he's here. Yet it's those men who he'd take their feet and he'd wash their feet. It's those men that he would deal with their pride as it came up again and again and again. It's these men that he would constantly minister to. But then if you look at how humiliating it must have been for Jesus, think about this. God wrapped in flesh. The Savior of the world comes. And often he teaches to crowds. Now I have the privilege of teaching to a crowd every week. But imagine Jesus teaching to crowds, say like ours today. A group like this, Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, teaching everybody, saying, I am the Savior, and most of them just leaving after. Oh, good word today. Good word today, Christ, Son of God. I'm going to go hang out with my family. Uh, What you said here was all right, but your second point was a little weak. It didn't really grasp the crowd here. How humiliating for God to come and to teach and to minister to, we know, throngs of people, multitudes of people, thousands upon thousands. But yet in the end, there's only a couple there by his side. How humiliating. That must be. If that's not enough, we also see that the Son of God would die. He doesn't wrap himself in flesh and be immortal. No, we saw last week he died. Jesus would be so marred by, by the whips and the, and the beatings that he would take that the Bible tells us you couldn't even recognize that it was a man anymore. This was, remember, God and he hangs on that cross. He, he hangs in the middle of sinners. He, he faces before that a trial that's just a sham. He's paraded through the streets for everybody to see him, for everybody to mock him. And he's just brutally beaten. We talked about that Friday, if you were here on Friday. He was brutally beaten. How humiliating. There is the Son of God on a cross 
and he breathes his last and he is dead. That's a humiliating spot. Now all of us will die. And it's not humiliating that we die. Nobody's like, oh, look at this guy, he died. What a loser. We don't have that. We're expected to die. But God? God dies? And then in his, in his death, there he is on the cross, dead, and somebody has to go and take him down. They have to get him off the cross because he can't do it himself at this point. He's dead. And he goes to the lowest of low in all the earth, the tomb, the grave, buried. We, we would say from dust you came, from dust you return. There is God in the grave See, in death, we see our frailty, don't we? In death, we see our weakness, we see our mortality. And these are not words that we would ascribe to God. We wouldn't want to serve a God who's weak, who's frail, who's mortal. That's, that's no God. That's not words that describe a good God. And so what took place is the worst injustice that could ever happen. And it happened to Jesus. He was killed, he died, and he was buried in a tomb. Yet the reason we gather this morning is because we know that this isn't the end of the story for the Son of God. For us, that's the end of the story. You're in the grave. There you are. No power to come back. No power to do anything on your own to, to try to fix that or to, to solve that. It's over. But not for Jesus. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, of which I already read. After talking about his humility, how he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, verse 9 through 11 talks about his exaltation. Therefore, because of that, because of his obedience to the point of death, because of his death on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see Christ's exaltation in scripture in a few ways. I'll do it really quickly this morning. Number one is in his resurrection. I told you we'd be in Luke as well. Real quick, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. I think it'd be uh, very sad if we didn't read this passage this morning. Uh, the resurrection. So in Luke 24, verse 1 through 12, we see the first part of Christ's exaltation, and that is his resurrection. It says, On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the mother and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling 
at what had happened. See, throughout the New Testament, what we see is we see the apostles appealing to people over and over again, and their appeal to them to trust in Jesus isn't just the fact that he died, but the big kicker is he came back to life. And if this man can come back to life, that's got to be a big deal. There's got to be something going on here. There's got to be something important happening. And what we see happening is in the resurrection, we see God exalting his son to the place that he should be as the one and true perfect Adam, is what scripture would say. See, the first man created was Adam, and what he do? He failed us. He fell short. He sinned. He didn't live the way he should have lived. And now today, we still all suffer because of that. We sin. We all fall short. But here, what we have in Jesus is the perfect man. And because he was the perfect man, hanging on that cross, being killed, that was in injustice. It shouldn't have been done. Because the Bible teaches us very clearly that there's only one thing that deserves death. Sin. That's it. Sin deserves death. There's a problem then with Jesus. He never sinned. There was no sin. Therefore, he never deserved to die. Death could not hold him. Death couldn't be his place forever. And so what had to happen, what had to take place to prove that God was just, is Jesus needed to rise. Death wouldn't hold him. And that's exactly what happens. The grave and death had no right on him. And so Jesus rises from the dead. And these women go to this tomb to do what they need to do to embalm him and for spices. And all of a sudden, the, the stone is rolled away. There's no body in there. And they're wondering what is happening. And this still happens today. There's all this speculation. Uh, did Jesus really rise? And we could take all the time to go through that. It is, it is ludicrous to think that the disciples made this up. Or I mean, again, if you're interested in that, you could talk to me about that later. I, I'd love to share more. But we have such great historical evidence that the fact that the tomb's empty. Jesus isn't there. And in the resurrection, we see the glory of God on full display. We see now the chance for you and I to be regenerated. We see the fact that we can be justified in our sin because Christ received justification in his resurrection. He had no sin. The just thing was for him to rise. We see sanctification is possible, the ability to be more like Christ because of the resurrection. We see redemption is possible. All of this is because of the resurrection. Listen, if we do not have the resurrection, we have a dead guy. That's it. We have another dead guy buried in the ground. But that's not the Christ. He was resurrected, and he's, he's exalted on high forevermore, Scripture says. And we see this in the next couple things, because it wouldn't be long after Christ, uh, after he is resurrected, he goes around, he, he sees his apostles, he sees all kinds of people, he begins teaching again. What we see in, at the end of Luke, we also see this in Acts. Jesus goes up on a, on a hill, he's teaching them, and something crazy happens. Jesus starts to ascend. He goes to be with the Father. And this is a literal exaltation. He is being raised on high. And the people are staring at him, going, wow, what is happening here? This is nuts. I saw you die. You rose again. If that's not enough, now you're floating on high. And as they stare at him, we know the angels go and say, what are you looking at? 
This same Jesus that ascends, he's going to come again. But we see God the Father exalting his son by the ascension taking place. He didn't have to die to go to the Father. He's at the Father now, alive and well. And he's not just with the Father, but Scripture tells us that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it'll be on the screen for those of you who are blind. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We see here that Christ ascends, but he ascends for a purpose. And that purpose is to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And it says here that he is determined king. All things are his at the right hand of the Father. He rules and reigns over everything. And because of that, he's our mediator. Jesus, because of his resurrection, because of his ascension, because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that is the reason why, and I want you to catch this, that is the reason why you today, right now, could pray to the Father because you're doing it through Jesus. You, you don't have to come to me to do that. You don't have to go to somebody else. You don't have to do some sort of ritual. It's not that way anymore. Because of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and seating at the right hand, you now have the privilege to go directly to the Father because Christ is our mediator. He allows us to do that. And we have the privilege to pray to the Father. And so what we see Jesus doing for us now today as he sits at the right hand of the Father is every single second, Jesus Christ is there speaking on your behalf to the Father. If you've been saved by God's grace, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you know you've done that, every single second, Jesus is saying to the Father, that, that one's mine. See the blood on that one? That's my blood. That happens while you sleep. That happens while you go about your business at work. That happens while you sin and fall short again and again and again. Jesus says, Father, that one's mine. Father, that one has been saved. That one has been redeemed. But also every second, Jesus is there ruling and reigning over all things. And he does it with complete power and authority. And now as I say that, I know the pushback would be, well, then why in the world is everything so messed up? Well, it's because that leads us to one of our last things of his exaltation. And that is the promise that he will return again. The Bible tells us that just like Jesus ascended on high, he will come again. And this time, not as weak. This time, not to hang out with some 12 guys and be frustrated with them and trying to teach them. This time, not to, not to be killed, not to go to a cross, not to, not to die. No, that, that work has been done and it's over. This time, the next time that he comes back, he's returning, the Bible tells us, as King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we read in Philippians, it says, at that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That, that's a big statement. There's plenty of people in this world, and maybe, maybe you're one of them. And that's okay. I mean, I would wish you weren't. But maybe you're one of them that would say, this Jesus stuff, not for me. 
this Jesus guy. No, I'm not, I'm not too into that. I gotta warn you. And I say this from the bottom of my heart out of great concern and care for you. There is one day coming where you won't say that. You won't say that. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here's the issue. For those who don't do that here, before our death, that's not gonna be a good moment for you. Because it's in that moment then you realize, oh boy, I was wrong. See, for those of us who've been saved by God's grace, we, we know it's nothing of our own doing. It's not because we're smarter than anybody else. It's because God has pricked our heart. He's, he's opened our eyes. He's helped us to see the truth of who he is. It's not some special wisdom we have or insight that we have. He saved us. And at that moment when he comes back, we will be able to declare to him still, you are king of kings and you are Lord of lords. And we look forward to that day when Jesus would, would come again to take away the shame and the guilt and the pain and the suffering and all these things that we experience in this world. But again, that only happens through a trust and a faith in Christ for us. See, in his first coming, he was brutally killed, he was mocked. But in his second coming, he comes to rule and to reign as Lord and he will be exalted above all things and he will be recognized as such in that moment. But the last thing I want to share with you is this because I think this is an astonishing thing. And again, this is only for those who've been saved by God's grace, those who've, who've trusted in faith to trust in Christ. The book of Ephesians tells us that what God the Father has done for us is he has placed us with Jesus. Now catch this. Okay, this is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, catch this, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And then notice, and raised us up with him, and does what? And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's astonishing what this is saying about us, about those who have faith in Christ. It's, it's amazing to think what it's saying here. For those of us who are we're dead in sin, dead in shame, this is, this is the humiliation of Christ, right? what, he, what he went through, but, but we lived in that, it says. We lived in that humiliation, and in fact, we enjoyed it. For those of us who walked according to this world, living out our sinful passions and desires, and for some of us, that describes us perfectly. We, we live out our sinful desires over and over and over again. That's what this world is all about, isn't it? It's about just making me happy and whatever that is. For those of us who just, we live that way. It says, even in this condition, living contrary to God, living, living opposed to God, instead just living for self all the time, what does it say he did? 
even in this condition, God loves us so much that he would pour out his grace on us. And what does he do? He actually then makes us alive in Christ. In Romans 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I'm sure there's people here this morning, maybe it's you, you, you live for the things of this world. Your motivation every single day is to, is to get up and it, it might even be good motivations, right? You, you want to advance in your career so that you can make more money so that you can help your family out. You know, you want to, you want to do all these different things in the world for, for joy and for happiness and that's, that's understandable, But that's not living according to scripture. Because when you live in this world apart from Christ and you're just all focused on yourself, actually, the Bible tells us we are actually a slave to sin. And we don't see it. We think we're living free, but in fact, we're living in complete bondage. You say, well, I don't think that's true of myself. (laughs) I would dare you. Try to stop living that way then. Go ahead. Try. Try to stop living for yourself. It's so hard to do. If you're married today, you know how hard this is. Because if you live for your spouse for six hours, let's say, and you don't get the sense that they're living for you within that six hours, you want a divorce. You're so frustrated at them. You're starting to think, I'm doing everything here. You're not doing anything. I'm taking the kids to school, I'm washing the dishes, I'm making dinner, I'm mowing the lawn, I'm doing doing everything here. It doesn't take long for us to get that attitude. Why? Because it's impossible for us to stop living for self because we are a slave to it. And that's what this is saying. Christ came and lived a perfect life. He died, he was buried, but he rose again. And he did that so that we could have life in him. To actually understand what life is. And he he makes us so alive that in Ephesians, what I read, we are alive in him. The question would be, how alive is Jesus? He's more alive than us. Because he's alive forever. My days are numbered. There's a day coming soon when I won't be here. There's a day coming soon when you won't be here. There's no day coming soon when Jesus won't be here. And we have been made alive in him because of God's great love and grace to us. And if that's not enough, and I hope this is what gets us excited even more this morning. If it's not enough that he can make us this alive in him, it also says he has seated us with Christ. Well, I already talked about this. Where is Jesus seated? Where is he seated right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and so are we. As his children, so are we. We sit with the same power and authority, again, not because of my power, not because of anything I can do, but because he has put me in Christ. Ephesians would say that the inheritance that Christ receives, guess what, is also for us as his children. We receive that inheritance. So, so Jesus' life is now my life. Jesus' perfection is my perfection. Jesus' death on the cross 
is my death that I deserved. All that brutality, all that, all that beating should have been me. But Jesus did it for me. And so it's his death that I have. His burial, my burial. But it doesn't end there. That's the humiliation. We also have the exaltation. His resurrection, my resurrection. His ascension, my ascension. His seating, my seating. His inheritance, my inheritance. And on the day that he comes back again, it says we will get to spend eternity with our Savior, our King, and our God forever. Why is Easter Sunday such a big deal? Why is Resurrection Sunday such a big deal? Because it is this Sunday that we specifically set aside, even though we talk about this all the time, where we celebrate the fact that Christ has been exalted. And in him being exalted, we are exalted. We are exalted. Listen, I, I, might, not, I might not live on this earth and get to have all the fame and fortune that we see out there. You know, God has blessed me with, with so many things and so many experiences. I, I know what it's like to have all kinds of joy that the things in this world have to offer. But the fact is, because of what God has done in my life, it's just true that I believe I need to live differently than what most of the world is living. And so as a result of that, to be quite honest, it's hard for me to have a lot of friends in the world because they see that I'm different, and to a lot of them it's kind of weird. It's kind of off-putting. I think it makes them feel uncomfortable, and they're kind, don't get me wrong, but they don't really want you at the party. They don't really want you around all the time. And that's okay. And so because of that, a lot of us are going to face, as Christians, we're going to face some scorn. Oh, you might face some ridicule. You, you might not get to advance like you would want to advance. And the fact is, it's just because you know you need to live different. And you would say, and I would say, but I don't live for the things of this world. But we also know it's hard, isn't it? It's hard not to live for the things of this world. We want to see our kids succeed. We, we want to see, succeed. And when we see our faith hindering that at times, it can, be, it can be quite difficult. I feel that just as much as I think anybody else does. But that's why I hope that this is something special for us this morning. As believers, we don't live for the things of this world we live because Christ has exalted us to his position. Which means one day this world will be gone. The powers, the rulers, and the authorities of this world is all going to be gone. And the Bible says that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the only ones that will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth are those who have been saved by God's grace. Trusted that in faith. And thanks be to God for many of us in here this morning we would say, that is me. And so when we understand that, it becomes a lot easier to, to shun some of the things of this world because we're, we're looking forward to eternity with our Father. We're resting in the, in the hope and the peace that He gives us in Christ. And we're living our days understanding that Christ has been resurrected, Christ has been exalted, and God is so good and so loving, He's exalted me as well. 
That makes it a lot easier to be shunned by, I don't know, a coworker. You say, well, I don't mean to say it very pompously, but you're just a dude. I have Jesus who loves me. I don't say it in a way to shun that guy or to push him aside, but Christ loves me and died for me. You not liking me is not going to get me down, right? Uh, my, my hope and my, my sights are much higher on him and what he is and what he's accomplished. See, as we gather together this morning, I, I hope you have found rest in the resurrection of Christ. If you haven't, this day's just another day to you. And that's fine. I, I don't believe I can convince you otherwise. I pray that God would convince you. I pray that God would help you see what he has done for you. How much of love he has shown you in the fact that he would send his one and only son to die in your place. To take what you fully deserve, but to place it on his son. But then we see what he does for his son. He raises him. He exalts him. He seats him at his right hand, giving him all power and all authority, and he is head of the church. And we have that for us too. I hope that you see God's love. I hope that you understand it. I I hope that you will trust in it. But again, it's not something I can do for you. It's not something your parents can do for you. It's something you must trust in. You must trust that God has done that for you in Christ. And the Bible says that when that happens, you are exalted. You are seated. You are with him. That's good news this morning, and I hope that you see that as good news. Well, I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. We're going to pray. After prayer, we're going to sing a song to close our service. This is how we do it each week, and really it's just for you to respond to the word of God. And I hope that you will. I hope that you'll respond to God's word. I don't know, maybe you've been living your life for this world. That's what you think about all the time. And maybe today you've heard something that made you think a little bit. I hope that you'll reflect on that. I hope that you'll dwell on that. I hope that God will use that in your life. It's a sad thing, as I had mentioned before, to think that Jesus would stand before multitudes and he would tell them, I am the Son of God and many people would just walk away. I beg of you this morning, as you've heard the gospel proclaimed, don't just walk away from it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Christ came, that he died, that he rose again, and he did that for you? If you do, the Bible tells us that when you trust in him, he's your savior and he saves you. So I hope God will do that work in your life this morning. God, we thank you that we come this morning not to celebrate or to worship or to talk about some dead guy. God, to be honest, I couldn't stand doing that. That would seem like such a waste of time. But God, this morning we come to worship Jesus who is alive and well and who your word tells us reigns forevermore. And that your word tells us that you have exalted us up with him. And God, we praise you for that this morning. That's, that's why we sing. That's, that's, that's why we come together and fellowship with one another. And that's why we're a part of this church is because Jesus is alive. 
That's what brings us together. That's what we're centered on is the fact that because Jesus is alive, he has saved us. Sinners who did not deserve it, but still because of your love, he would save us. That's what unites us. Not a love for anything else, not, not a commonality of anything else. What unites us as a church family is Christ. And so God, we thank you for that. I thank you for Jesus' obedience, for his willingness to come to this earth, his strength to live a perfect life, and his ability to go to that cross and to die and to take my place. God, I thank you that it's not about how good I can be. It's not about a set of rules. It's not even about how often I went to church. I'm so thankful that what it's about is Jesus saving me while I was still a sinner. And that it's his blood that covers me, nothing else. And that my sins have been dealt with because of Jesus. God, I pray for that person this morning who thinks that the only way their sin can be dealt with is by doing better or being good or coming to church. God, I pray that you'd help them to see that that's not true. I pray for that person as well who doesn't even see sin, who's living a life very lost. Help them to see that. Help them to see the hope that is found in Jesus. God, help us as a church family to exalt you on high each and every time we gather together to worship and praise your name and nobody else's, but to always be centered and focus on you, our God, our King, and our Lord. God, we thank you that the grave could not hold Jesus, but that he's alive and well forevermore. God, help us to never forget that. Help us to always dwell on it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.